Hi, I'm Daniel Burkholder. Welcome to Act React, a podcast exploring improvisation through conversations with remarkable artists. Today, I welcome Nicole Bindler, a longtime colleague and friend of mine, for a really wide-ranging conversation. I am sure you're going to enjoy the conversation as much as I did. In addition to this podcast, we also have a YouTube channel. So if you want to see Nicole and I having the conversation instead of just listening, you can go over to YouTube and check it out. And I'll make sure the link is in the show notes. And if the, the, if the interview isn't up right now, I promise it'll be up soon. Um, before we get started, here's a little bio about Nicole. Nicole Bindler is a dance maker, body mind centering practitioner, writer, and activist. She has been presented at festivals, conferences, and intensives throughout the US, Canada, Argentina, and Europe, as well as in Tokyo, Beirut, Bethlehem, Mexico City, and Quito. Recent projects include teaching about consent culture and disability justice in contact improvisation, somatic research on the embryology of the genitalia from a non-binary perspective, collaborations with DR Theater in Bethlehem, Palestine, teaching experimental classes such as embodying neuroqueer, neuroqueering embodiment, and polyvagal theory and protest through free school, as well as presentations at the Future of CI Conference and the BMC Online Somatic Symposium about rebuilding in-person dance and somatic communities in ways that tangibly address the inequalities laid bare by the pandemic. In the coming years, she will present her work at the Asociación Cultural Guando in Quito, the Body IQ Festival in Berlin, Somatic Kin in Bern, the Sandberg Institute in Amsterdam, and through Contact Improvisation Warsaw. I'll include a link in the show notes to her website where you can find out more about these activities. So without further ado, let's jump right in this wonderful conversation with Nicole. Enjoy. Hi, Nicole. Thank you so much for joining me today. Thanks so much for having me, Daniel. Yeah, it's really great. Um, I'm really glad to have you as part of this podcast. We've kind of intersected in so many ways over the years and had some of these kind of conversations, both kind of, you know, late at night in places, but also just being in the studio with one another, being in each other's classes and all that kind of stuff. So really excited to join um, join your voice into, into this ongoing conversation about improvisation with all these different artists that I've been able to speak to. Yeah, it's a really wonderful project. And yeah. just listening to a few of the, the episodes has really given me an opportunity to reflect on what is important to me in improvisation, having been isolated for a long time and now slowly reemerging out into the world, but not teaching a whole lot. I think that teaching is one of the main <laughs> ways that I reflect do that feedback loop with students. And since I haven't been doing that as much, I haven't really been considering as much what is important to me or why I even do this practice. So yeah. I'm excited about getting to dive into that with you. Awesome. So this is, I mean, usually this first question that I ask everyone is an interesting question to ask these days because of kind of what you just alluded to of us. So many of us, our practices have changed or shifted or sometimes had to be paused in certain ways um, over the last 18 months or so. Um, but so how does improvisation show up in your life, in your artistic practice in, in any way these days? 
in a lot of different ways. Um, it's really a survival tool for me. So during the pandemic, I live alone and was very isolated. And so I decided to start to build up some family pods, which I think in some ways was a real privilege being, being solo and not having children or other people under my care. I was able to kind of, you know, make a lot of choices around who I engaged with and how and when. And so I really uh, thought about what I needed in the beginning of lockdown and realized that the kind of companionship I needed was around artistic practice and improvisation. So I actually put out a letter to folks. I don't know if I included you because there's mostly folks on the East Coast, but maybe I included you in this letter. You, you might have. I mean, I remember I remember something about this. So either that or we talked about it or something. Yeah. Yeah, it was a, it was a heartfelt letter I wrote to my communities asking for podmates, a podmate or or plural podmates who would be available to meet with me for quarantine intensive periods to dance together. And so I really uh, focused a lot of my relational attention during these many, many months on dance practice. So I, I feel very fortunate that I have had the opportunity to spend time in dance practice during these lonely months. And I also was able to get an artist share at my local dance studio, the whole shebang. And so I've done a lot of solo practice as well and started to post these short excerpts of my solo practice on Instagram, which was a way for me to share with my communities because I wasn't able to do live performance. And so that has been a really wonderful new practice playing with the camera, which is not something that I had done a whole lot of before. Right. And I started to develop a practice of using my phone camera as a first person kind of subjective eye so that it's both, well, I'm both subject and object, you know, I'm, right. I'm filming myself and sometimes, you know, static on a tripod, but sometimes, well, sometimes, you know, taping it to the ceiling or doorway or the floor and sometimes holding it and giving the viewer a sense of my movement as I'm dancing. Yeah. Um, and I actually started to develop that practice working with the Move Move Collaborative, which was a residency that's usually based in Baltimore in June that in June 2020 was online. And so we developed this practice on Zoom, um, improvising together in ensemble using um, lights and materials and filters, uh, a lot of bike lights and lighting gels and um, fabrics and also moving our, our laptops or pads or phones uh, to give each other a sense of our physical spaces and the sort of physicality of what it's like for us to be moving right now on our own in our own spaces. Yeah. So through the dance potting and then this solo practice, I've been I've been improvising quite a bit. So yeah, yeah I feel grateful. So going back to the pods, could you just say a little bit more of like what you would do when you all got together to dance? 
Like, yeah. was there, was there like a structure? Was it just like, let's just dance and go? Or was there, were you working on specific things that were of interest to you all? What was the kind of, yeah, how did you negotiate that time together? Yeah, I did dance potting with, I don't know, maybe five or six different people. I think six different people mm -hmm. over the course of 18 months. Um, now I feel like I'm in a different phase post post vaccination where yeah. I mean with the Delta variant, I'm still, you know, I'm being uh, somewhat discerning about who I share airspace with without a mask. But um, but pre-vax, it was, you know, it was very rigorous, like tons of conversations around consent, you know, leading up to what we're what we feel comfortable with and how much time do we want to quarantine and what kind of testing do we want to do and what's our lifestyle like. And then um, I think that, that that level of consent-based dialogue leading up to the interaction really set us up for pretty excellent communication. In, at least in my opinion, I felt like the communication was, was um, at a quite, quite a high level in these interactions so that when we got to our shared living space, whether it was my house or their house, and then maybe a dance studio, um, we would really engage with what was in the room, what was in our hearts, what, what we needed. There was a lot of body work, a yeah. lot of dramatic practice, a lot of contact improvisation, needing touch, and uh, sometimes authentic movement to do a lot of emotional processing, and then sometimes some performance practice. And the people I got together with had different kinds of vantage points or ways into improvisation. So some people were you know, quite committed to contact improvisation as a social practice. Others were more um, theater performers who had an interest in dance. Others are, you know, highly trained dancers who have done some contact improvisation and somatic. So, you know, depending on what people's focuses were, we would, you know, kind of do some different things. But it was mostly just about the relational space and survival. <laughs> yeah. You know? Yeah, no doubt. No doubt. Yeah, we I didn't I didn't do that. But we as a family, my wife and daughter and I, we did pod with one other family. Nice. And with, you know, strict agreements about like, besides the seven of us, like really strict with masking and distancing and all that kind of stuff. And so basically for a year and a half, they were our whole social scene, like every weekend, that's who we were hanging out with and stuff. Mm -hmm. And it definitely was a, a great lifeline to have. Yeah, um, you so know. yeah, yeah. And we became like really super good friends. <laughs> it's like we oh. are, are, you know, our, the friendship of the whole family just deepened so much to have that time together. So I can appreciate kind of having that, those pods as little lifelines of contact, yeah. of relations, of being with one another. Yeah, and, and one of my pod mates, Mark Kennedy is somebody, this is so funny. We met, we actually, you know, have kind of been in overlapping scenes in Philadelphia. He's more of a theater person, yeah. but we actually met um, on Facebook on, in a Facebook group that I created with Gabrielle Revlock called the Apocalypse Singles Club. <laughs> <laughs> it's just a really hilarious and beautiful space for conversations about intimacy during the pandemic. So Mark and I met, we decided to dance pod together. We had these weekly 
dance sessions at the whole shebang. And then I started to work on an old solo for the upcoming Fringe. I'm actually performing it in like 10 days. <laughs> Very exciting. Awesome. And, and so, and because there, I use so much clowning and puppetry and theater in it's autobiographical and I, I use these different kinds of methods and techniques that I'm not highly trained in. I'm really trained yeah. as a dancer. And so it just was so fortuitous that he had some free time and interest and he's been directing my solo and offering so much incredible outside eye feedback. So there's a way in which this kind of lifeline dance pod has now moved into this next phase, whatever this pandemic phase is post-vax, yeah. um, where we're attempting to, you know, perform in public in all these, you know, kind of strange ways. And the relationship is continuing developing uh, into a more public facing thing that we didn't ever really intend. We were really just like, let's get together and dance because we need each other. So. Yeah. yeah, wonderful. Great. So um, maybe zoom out just a little bit now, because I know thinking about what I know of your improvisational practice. And like one of the things that really strikes me is like how embedded somatics and specifically body mind centering but somatics in general is to to your practices and um both improvisation and just in general and so i'm wondering if you could talk a little bit about like well what what is that so i was thinking first maybe it'd be interesting for you to even just to like help like people understand what somatics or and or body mind centering is as a place to start so maybe not everyone listening will have be familiar with those words or those practices and then also about how that relates to your own practice mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. yeah i can i can define what somatics and bmc is to me and how it relates to improvisation and i think that yeah. it will also be helpful to go back a little bit autobiographically to sort of explain how i even got to do this weird yeah this weird thing that we do. <laughs> yeah, so um, I'll start with, you know, somatic practice for me is an exploration or an investigation of the body through first person research. So that, you know, maybe a teacher or a facilitator is going to create some kind of container for the exploration. Like let's explore the articulation of these particular bones and what they do or, Here's some anatomical principles that we can play with, but that it's really about the practitioner, the student or the practitioner doing their own research into how those parts of their body move and relate to the world and the, the sensations that they evoke, the memories, the feelings, the obstacles or challenges or the joys underlying those different movement principles or, or parts of the body. And I think that Sometimes people can get confused um, and conflate like, you know, any kind of physical practice or training with somatics. And, and my opinion is that, you know, for example, you could practice yoga or Pilates somatically or not, that they're not inherently somatic practices. And that, that doesn't mean that they're better or worse, but that the, it, that if something is um, more codified or regimented, or if the outcome is already known, if it's not an experiment, then I don't think it's 
really a somatic practice. Yeah. And so that, you know, as soon as I enter into some physical practice or embodied practice, knowing what the outcome will be, it's I've sort of left the realm of somatics and I've moved into the realm of like, you know, exercise or training, which is, you know, not bad. I mean, I, I love Pilates and I, I have a very specific routine that I do on a reformer. Um, but, you know, sometimes I like to slow it down and, and investigate, well, what is going on with my my patella there and 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 it becomes more of a question and less of um something happening from the outside into my body it's more moving from the inside out yeah and so what i love about body mind centering as a somatic practice is that it's both highly anatomically oriented it's very scientific but it's also more open-ended than many practices which is part of what exasperates many people about body mind centering because it can be yeah. like it can seem so esoteric and vague and like, just like woo. Um, but I think that the open-endedness and the fact that we do so much of the practice and exploration through improvisation is what really drew me to it when I was trying to decide which somatic method to delve into. And that doesn't mean that BMC can't also be applied through, you know, more specific kinds of, um, you know, routines or, or body work, you know, we do hands-on exploration with each other and witnessing, but, um, but a lot of it is just through movement. So, yeah. Yeah. Great. And so could you talk a little bit more then about how that um, is then kind of brought into your improvisational practice? Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Um, <laughs> so, I mean, actually, so I was, I was reflecting on this before coming into this call with you and yeah. thinking about, you know, why, how did I become an improviser anyway? Like, how did this happen? Um, I was trained from very early on in more traditional modern dance techniques like Graham Technique and Horton. And I arrived at Hampshire College, you know, with this very kind of clear mindset of where I was headed. And I thought I, would, I was going to be a modern dancer. I was going to join a company. And then I developed a series of injuries and chronic illnesses that over the years just kind of cascaded and really prevented me from going along that trajectory. And so one of the things that a lot of people don't realize about disability and chronic illness and injuries is that they they do tend to cascade so if you for example have um a torn ligament in your knee the likelihood that that's going to create some kind of movement pattern that then creates a tear in your ankle below or your hip above or impacts through the fascia some other part of your body it's just it's more likely to happen than if you hadn't had that original injury. And if you have an organ that isn't functioning well or an autoimmune disease, it's more likely that that's going to cascade into other kinds of illnesses. And so I remember one of my classmates in body mind centering training asking me in, in quite an ableist way, Nicole, why do so many bad things happen to you? <laughs> and, you know, and I, I think that was a, a pretty shitty thing to say. However, it really did give me a window into considering, you know, wh why have I 
suffered from so many different illnesses and injuries and, and how they're very interrelated. And so I knew that if I wanted to be a dancer, that I was going to have to find a different way. And I used somatic practices, including body, mind centering and Feldenkrais to heal from a lot of my aches and pains and to get to a place of at least functioning at a level where I could, you know, navigate the world with some, some ease and joy. And also realized that focusing on improvisation as a creative practice, as a dance practice, I was going to be more successful because I would be able to show up for that in a way that would just be yeah, more successful than if I tried to practice somebody else's choreography every day. And that doesn't mean that I don't like to go to technique classes, but I, I have to be very discerning about when and how I show up to those. Um, and so I started to explore improvisation as a sort of like escape hatch, you know, like, okay, this is, this is how I'm going to this is how I'm going to be able to do the work that I feel like I'm meant to be doing in the world, embodiment yeah. and dance performance. But what it did was it really opened up for me so many possibilities because I really discovered improvisation through studying conduct improvisation in college and just the relational and social aspect of it was just so incredibly fun. Yeah. I realized, wow, improvisers have more fun. <laughs> And I, you know, and I, I think that that could be the case in improvisation through any different kind of aesthetic or tradition yeah. that there is, that there is this potential for play. And I think within choreographed dancing, there's always, you know, a potential for play as well, but the, the degree to which our personalities and ourselves can really uh, explode out and, and show up is just, is, is pretty exciting. And I think that also the multifacetedness of improvisation has really excited me in that, um, you know, it could be used as a, like a physical training or a somatic practice, also as a means toward creative practice, um, a way to develop choreography or viewing improvisation as instant choreography that's just occurring in the moment. But it's also a way into performance practice and presence. So I think that oftentimes improvisation can, especially like in university dance departments can get really compartmentalized and it can be explored kind of like as a technique, it can get you know labeled as a technique class or as a kind of precursor to composition or right. you know, some sort of creative practice. I think that it, you know, I think that these kinds of delineations are, are um, not necessary that it can be both, but also, that you know something that isn't taught enough is performance practice like how to actually be with an audience and be with a space in a space mm -hmm. and i think that improvisation can be a really great way into presence and uh you know oftentimes i think that you know there's this assumption that that embedded in the choreography is going to be the roadmap for presence so for example like you know, we're going to breathe on this count or we're going to use our eyes in this way or face this way or have this expression. And that can be like inherent in the choreography. But I don't think that's an assumption we can really make because a lot of um, choreographers don't take full advantage of all of these sort of ways into presence. And so I think that uh, improvisation can be a way to to train in that and to really hone that.
Yeah, that's great. Can you um, say a little bit more about what you mean by presence? Oh, that's a really good question. It seems it's, it's one of those words that's out there that I think sometimes yeah. it's like you're you're try it's it's challenging to get a hold of it. So, but I don't know if you Slippery. have. Yeah, definitely. Slippery fish. Yeah. Um. Well, for me, presence is about how we are with ourselves and others, and becoming more conscious and intentional around how we are with ourselves and others. So I think that, you know, there are some people who are said to have inherent good performance presence. Yeah. I think that there are ways to, to craft that and develop that, but I don't think that it needs to be something that you have or don't have. Um, I think that there are a lot of people who are working with presence these days in some really exciting ways. The person who I've trained with the most or who has had the most impact on me is Deborah Hay. Mm -hmm. And Deborah Hay is working with presence a lot through the way we use our eyes and our seeing, and also through our sense of timing, time passing. Mm -hmm and our relationship to space. And so I think that there are also ways to play with presence or explore presence through our breath. Um, but that when, when a dance practitioner or performer is exploring presence in a way, in my opinion, when, when a practitioner is exploring presence well, what they are doing is extraneous. It's really how they're doing it. So the actual action of the body is less important than the way that the performer is attending to that action. And that idea was always really compelling to me because of various injuries I've had. I couldn't always perform the physical action that I did, my heart desired to do with my body, <laughs> sure. but I could do something different with my body, something that was, was feasible for my body, but do it in such a way where I could convey some of the same feelings or ideas and that an audience would be able to have that, that visceral experience of, um, you know, whatever it is that I'm, that I'm feeling in my body. Yeah, that's great. And one of the, as I was watching some of the videos that you shared, and I was watching the duet with Andy, and then also the Deborah Hay piece, mm -hmm. um, which was great, because it was from the dinner party in DC. And I was like, I said, the audience I was like, I know them, I know them, I know them. So that was kind of sweet to see. Mm -hmm. um, I, I did the question that came up to me is really interesting or curious about when you are improvising, what are you attending to? like performing like when you're performing when you're performing mm -hmm. improvisationally what are you attending to mm -hmm. well <clears throat> i had this very fun opportunity once in a susan redhorst workshop to play with the practice of choreography for a week and then have everybody who was participating in the workshop reflect back to me what they saw the essence of my work was we all did that for each other i mean it was such a yeah. beautiful practice that she invited us to do to just witness each other and our in our patterns and to really be seen and it's kind of embarrassing and but like just so tender and sweet yeah 
And so as the circle was going around and everyone was reflecting to me what they thought my work was, they they basically said like your work is about like escape like you're basically trying to break out of the room so whatever the boundary is of the space you're literally trying to climb out the window or the walls or like uh -huh. trying to get into the rafters or the spaces that are like off limits yeah and so you know i think that boundary pushing and and sort of being a bit of a trickster is like you know a part of my personality and that's how it shows yeah. up in my work yeah. but um you know, in the Deborah Hay piece, like there's a somewhat of a spatial score and temporal score and some kinds of elements that we're supposed to visit at different times, but then how we get there is really our own. And, you know, the ways that I was playing like behind the curtains and exiting yeah. and again, like that wasn't a part of the choreography. That was just my interpretation of playing with the, the boundaries of the space. Like, you know, one of my favorite pieces of choreography that blew my mind was Miguel Gutierrez's piece, I can't remember which one it was, where like basically audience is seated on the stage and the performers are like, you know, by the curtain mm -hmm. and like everything's reversed and then the curtain opens and then the performers are like dancing in the chairs, you know, just that reversal yeah. is just like so delightful for me. So, um, so I think that one thing I'm attending to a lot is space and architecture and the various shapes and how my body could relate to them. And also playing with timing in a way that I find delightful and maybe a bit humorous, like yeah, sort of yeah. surprising myself and others with timing or sound, bringing in unexpected elements, like using objects in ways that they're not typically meant to be used, um, or also, um using objects as instruments like the sound of the chair dragging on the floor for example yeah so i like to play with expanding the possibilities of what the space is or is supposed to be yeah. and i think in that way through that sense of play i'm also playing with the audience so i feel like there's there's a bit of a clown there and a bit of a you know enjoyment of um you know, pushing boundaries, not in a way that causes harm or anxiety, but just in a way that um, can make people feel a bit um, of that kind of tickle. Like I like to tickle people, you know? Yeah, it, definitely. There's, there's a one moment in the piece where you're in the, the bathtub and you come out of the bathtub and you come onto the table and you like you, you kind of nestle in with the one woman that's sitting at the table and kind of like cuddle with her for a moment and you can just see kind of how delighted she is in that moment like um they're just that kind of yeah and also with the Deborah Hay piece with all the the curtain and everything like that and being behind people and making people really engage with you um in a different way like they can't just sit and watch yeah, and I try whenever I use touch and performance, it's changed over the years because I'm more yeah. involved in, you know, teaching consent work, but yep. I I have historically always tried to only engage in touch with people who I know personally yeah. who have yeah. engaged in touch yeah. practices before. Yeah, yep, yep. That but makes um, sense. but uh, but audiences don't necessarily know that. So Right. Yeah. Yeah. That's wonderful. Um I don't want to take up too much of your time here. I mean, there's so much, it just feels like there's so much to talk about. Um, but I do want to make sure that we like 
settle in or, or have a couple of moments to talk about the work you do around social justice and how improvisation comes into that work. And it also feels like that work comes out of improvisation as well. And just maybe give, yeah, I don't have a really super specific question about it. I know there's certainly the work that you did in Palestine and, and work you've done in your own community. Um, mm -hmm. But so I'll leave it pretty broad to start with, but just, you know, how does social justice fit into this mix that we've been talking about? Yeah, that is a, that is a question that I am continually asking myself. Yeah, and totally. I think that the ways that social change and embodiment practices and performance intersect, it can show up in many different ways, but there are two main kinds of like, um, containers for it. One would be through my political organizing with various kinds of groups like Jewish Voice for Peace. I might bring uh, embodied practices into our work through grounding exercises before an action or highlighting ways that I see embodied intelligence showing up. So there's a workshop that I'm that I'm going to be teaching in Amsterdam in November through the the, the Sandberg Institute um, in this temporary master's program called Bodies of Ecology, and mm -hmm. I was asked specifically to teach this workshop that I've been calling Polyvagal Theory and Protest. Though I might change the title because there are there are some aspects of polyvagal theory that are disputed now it's definitely, it's definitely been going around the feldenkrais world yes yes <laughs> where where yeah but anyway but, but regardless yeah. like yeah. looking at the nervous system and relational work as it relates to protest movements and organizing and so you know there's this one this one event that happened in philadelphia i think in 2016 where people were protesting one of the pipelines and uh, members of Jewish Voice for Peace, this group of rabbis had intended to occupy a bank, but had the police had gotten tipped off and they were, you know, barricading it. But then without even a word, they noticed another bank across the street that was also implicated in, um, in these, these environmental crimes and crimes against indigenous communities. Um, and they just they just kind of beeline for this other bank without speaking and it was this kind of emergent strategy style hurting situation where they successfully occupied this other bank and i attribute their ability to do that to the fact that as rabbis they do a lot of contemplative practices that are not necessarily explicitly embodied but are quite embodied and really tune them into themselves and community so they were able to communicate non-verbally and so i like to look at ways that embodied practices can support protest movements and political movements and also the ways that they like already exist and just to sort of shine a light on that yeah and then so that's one bucket and then the other container is trying to enact social change within dance communities and support more equity and inclusivity through trainings and dialogues and information sharing. And I've, over the years, um, you know, I co-founded the, the DEI committee at Earth Dance and have done a lot of workshops around disability justice and contact improvisation and uh, some classes on 
neuroqueer identity in in dance communities and also you know gender and racial equity workshops so trying to um raise more awareness i would say um to less success <laughs> you know i i sort of become a bit uh i've become a bit cynical about dei training in progressive spaces and in non in the nonprofit industrial complex like i i don't really see it necessarily being uh, that successful however i do still very much believe in building workshops and curricula that 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 weave these ideas but i think that it's it's for me i found more successful for those who have buy-in and who are actually opting in rather than like coming into a yeah. community or a festival and sort of being this like required training that people a lot of people resent yeah yeah so yeah, yeah we're definitely going through some of that work in our department right now and just recognizing the challenges of making change and um and like there's change there's like the internal change and awareness we each need to keep working on then there's like the change just within our individual syllabi to make sure that you know that we're not being so narrow focused and then there's the change in the curriculum to the whole department that we need to address and then there's just the university allowing these changes to happen in a timely manner because of the bureaucracy. And it's like that all of these things, like you can do one thing, but without the other, it's hard for it to stick. And right. so, yeah, so the, the challenge is real. Yeah, and I yeah. think in the situation with the, with the university or with any kind of institution that I think with this work there, in general, I've seen too much emphasis or focus on the individual, like individuals having these kinds of spiritual awakenings about their the ways that they're implicated in oppressive dynamics, which like, you know, is is maybe very useful for the individual in terms of their own personal growth. Yeah. But the thing is that you know each individual is is working within a system within a community and that if there are systems in place for example like you know at the university if you have this situation where some people have tenure and other people don't and then there are adjuncts and grad students and there are these different tiers and there isn't a worker solidarity or a union then it's very difficult in a situation that is so hierarchical and so unequal to you know have a have a workshop for all faculty including contingent faculty that you know don't have any job security and right. to tell them like you know these are some ways that we expect you to behave and show up and without addressing like the bigger problems in the institution it's it's very it's very difficult to like just voice that onto the individuals yeah totally and so yeah i i feel like I have a friend who does um, union organizing at universities and works with a lot of adjuncts in terms of empowering them and yeah. just, you know, opening up their minds to what's possible and what they actually deserve. Yeah. Uh, and, and I find that kind of work, the union organizing to be actually, I mean, it's so coalitional. And then within that, you can build all of this awareness of the intersections of, of classism and racism and gender-based violence that show up and all the other isms and oppressions that show up 
through this practice of trying to build power together. So it's not that these trainings are useless, but I just think that without building that that kind of people power and doing actual organizing within dance that that you know change isn't really going to happen. Yeah. That makes total sense. Um, so we kind of veered off a little bit and want to kind of come back to, to improvisation, which is fine. It's awesome. Um, and to just kind of maybe wrap it up a little bit here, like how, like I, I, I could get a sense that all these things, like the 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 more political work, the more internal somatic work and the improvisation and just like your daily life is all kind of weaved. It's like, it's easy to like pull these apart, but it's it, to me, when I think of you, I think of this, this weave of all these things um, that are always ever present with one another at the same time. Like it's not so easy to separate them out. Mm -hmm. um, and I think that's, one of the reasons why I find you and your work artistic and, and everything so compelling. Yeah. And I think that's why you have such great impact in the world, even though I know it probably doesn't always feel like that, but, um, but you do. And um, so I don't know if there's any, any other thing that you want to just say about the work that you're doing in the world and, and just, yeah, just to kind of close out with that. Oh man, I don't know how to close out after all of that. Um, I'm just very grateful for the opportunity that you gave me to reflect with you on these things that are just so important to me and, and sometimes feel a little bit navel gazy or obscure, but actually like do have real world impact. And yeah. Um, yeah, I love that you're just creating a space for these conversations and I can't wait to listen to more of them. All right. Well, thank you so much, Nicole. I really appreciate you taking the time. And um, uh, I'm really glad to add you to the mix to Act React podcast. Thank you, Daniel. Yeah. Have a wonderful day. Thanks, you too. Bye. Bye.